Welcome to Linda's Corner, a podcast created to inspire hope, increase joy, and motivate positive change. Hi, my name is Linda Bjork. I'm an author, teacher, speaker, blogger, and founder and executive director of Hope for Healing, which is a nonprofit charity designed to help alleviate symptoms of depression and anxiety, relieve stress, build confidence and self esteem, and heal relationships. You can learn more by visiting our website at hopeforhealingfoundation.org. For today's episode, I'm going to share a segment from one of my books called Crushed. If you're joining us for the first time, I would suggest that you start at the first podcast, since stories tend to make more sense when you read them, or listen to them, in order from the beginning to the end. Chapter 31, The Third Mentoring Session I was looking forward to the next mentoring session. When I filled out the pre-appointment questionnaire, I had some positive answers, and I expected this one to be uplifting and easy. I figured that I had already gone through the hard stuff. I thought this session would be a breeze. I was dead wrong. Instead, it was disturbing and confusing, and I learned that I was way more messed up than I ever thought possible. I hit another wall. I learned some new things about myself that I didn't like, and I didn't want to face them. This was so hard and felt so dangerous and unsafe. I just wanted to give up and make the pain, shame, and discomfort stop. I was so excited to see your answers on the questionnaire, Suzanne said. For the one word to describe yourself, you put happy. I'm thrilled that you're having success. Thanks, I said. On your list of successes since our last visit, it says you accepted a compliment, she said. What was the compliment? Actually, I don't remember, I confessed. I was just trying to find 10 successes since our last visit, and I read through my personal tracking form, and it said accepted a compliment as one of the things. I can't remember what it was, just that I was proud of myself for not rejecting it. Well done, she said. Often, when people get a compliment, they reflexively brush it away. If you watch people, they actually use body language by physically holding up their hands to block it or flick it away. I didn't realize I was doing that until someone called me on it. Why did you brush away my compliment, she asked, and I didn't have an answer. When someone gives you a compliment, draw it into you. Actually bring your hand to your heart and draw it into you. She made a motion with her arm, bringing her hand to her heart to demonstrate. Also, you don't need to feel obligated to give a compliment in return. It's okay just to say, thank you. Or you can say, thank you, you're so kind. You're doing great. I'm so proud of you. Thank you, I said. Remember to draw it into you and bring your hand to your heart, she admonished. Oh, I said. I hadn't realized that was a test. Sheesh, I thought. Instant fail. I'm not just supposed to listen and take notes. I'm actually supposed to do it. I tried it, and it felt awkward. I also noticed on your questionnaire that you survived a rejection, she said. Tell me about that. Well, my daughter Sarah wrote a book, and we're self-publishing it. The stories and writing style were awesome, but the original version was in desperate need of editing. 
There were so many errors that we wouldn't even be able to give copies to grandparents, I said. So I've spent the past several months going through it, making corrections, working with the publishing company, and things like that, getting it ready to print. Now that it's finished, I've been writing letters to stores to ask them to offer it, and I got a rejection letter from one because their profit margin wasn't high enough to carry it. Why are you doing all this? she asked. Why isn't Sarah doing it? She's been super busy with college and work, I explained. She simply didn't have time. So, are you going to be okay that you do all this work, but she gets all the credit? she asked. Of course, I replied. She's my daughter. I'm proud of her and love to see her be successful. I see, Suzanne said. And is your name on the cover too? No, I said, taken aback. Did you know that you can share credit on a joint effort, she said? You can include edited by and have your name included too. That wouldn't be right, I said. They're her stories. Actually, Sarah had offered exactly what Suzanne was suggesting. Your name should be on the cover too, Sarah had told me one day. You've put more time and effort into the project than I have. Oh, no, I refused. All the stories are yours. The cute and playful writing style is yours. All I did was clean it up so your awesome work could shine through. Suzanne was still talking, so I had to bring my attention back to the present. Did you realize that you consistently put yourself in a sacrificial position? She asked. You're always giving, which is good, but you never allow yourself to receive. You're starving yourself. I didn't like the way this conversation was going. I'm getting chewed out for serving and doing good? Isn't that what moms are supposed to do? I'm going to teach you about the principle of give and take, she said. She drew a simple picture of a lever balanced on a fulcrum. Do you remember playing on a teeter-totter when you were little? Yes, I replied. What happens on a teeter-totter? when one person is a lot heavier than the other person, she asked. Well, one person stays down on one end, I said, and the other person stays up on the other end, and it doesn't move. Right, she said. And is it fun for either person? No, not really, I said. This is like the principle of give and receive, she explained. But when you're giving all the time, it's like you're down on the ground lifting the other person up. But you also need to allow them to lift you up. People who do all the work and carry everybody else wear themselves out. Furthermore, it isn't good for the person who is being carried all the time. They want to feel useful and needed too. The best relationships are give and take, with two equal partners giving and receiving, like the teeter-totter going back and forth. There needs to be a balance of give and receive in order to have joy. I've never considered that. I just thought I was supposed to serve. I don't really know how to receive. The idea was strange and uncomfortable. I was grateful when she finally changed the subject. On your questionnaire, you also mentioned that you've talked to your kids. What did they say? How did they respond? She asked. Well, I wrote down what I've been doing to heal and let them read it. 
and they were very supportive, I said. You didn't tell them you wrote it, she queried. Well, yes, I said. Okay, so you're sort of finding your voice, but you don't have it all the way yet, she clarified. You haven't dared have a conversation with them in person yet. Oh, is that what that means? I said, disappointed. Have you shared with Lewis yet? She probed. No way, I replied. That's way too scary. At some point, you're going to need to talk with him, she said. I remember talking with my husband, and he was shocked when he realized that I didn't feel emotionally safe with him. It was a real eye-opener for him. We both had to make some changes, but it is amazing. Now he keeps saying, we make such an awesome team. And that's what we are. We are a team. Like the teeter-totter example, relationships are better when both people are contributing as equal partners. It's more fun. Okay, she continued. We had planned earlier to work on creating a new mental image for you today, but you're not ready for that yet. When I saw what you wrote on your questionnaire about the obstacles that you're facing and that you don't want to bring up new ping-pong balls and that you have a lot of anger and jealousy in you, I realize that you're so full of garbage that there isn't room for a new image yet. We need to work on clearing out the garbage first so there is enough room for something new. My shoulders sagged with the weight of my failure and shame, not to mention the dread that I would have to face more of my garbage. Why wouldn't it just go away? Chapter 32, Visualization We're going to try something different today, she said. You're going to do a visualization. This can be a very powerful tool to get rid of garbage. Okay, I said. I want you to close your eyes and visualize a mountain meadow. Tell me what you see, she instructed. There is a meadow with grass and wildflowers. I said. Good. What else do you see? What does it feel like? She asked. The sun is shining, but there is also a soft breeze blowing. I see trees on the mountain slopes on either side, I added. Good. What kind of trees? What do they look like? How does it feel? She asked. There are evergreens and aspens, I said. The leaves of the aspens are quaking gently. It feels comfortable and peaceful. Okay, she said. As you're looking across the trees, you see a figure begin to emerge. In my mind, the scene changed at once. The peace was gone, and I was instantly on my guard to protect myself from the intruder. I saw an ominous hooded figure emerge from the woods, which had turned dark and menacing. I thought this was a test to practice using my shield that I learned about in the last mentoring session. I braced myself for the attack. He is dressed all in white, Suzanne said. You recognize that it is the Savior. My mind reeled. This was not the direction that I was expecting this to go, and I was surprised to realize that I preferred the idea of facing a hooded foe. What does he do? 
What does he say to you? she asked. I hesitated. I didn't know how to answer. I tried to change my mental image from the dark hooded figure to the Savior and waited for my imagination to fill in the next step. In my mind's eye, the Savior just stood there, and we eyed each other warily. It was like the experience of seeing someone in a grocery store that you know that you know them from somewhere, but you can't remember their name, so you hurry to the next aisle and hope they don't see you. It was that kind of awkward. I was pretty sure that wasn't the response Suzanne was hoping for, so I tried to think of what the Savior was supposed to do. In the paintings, he's always welcoming and hugging people, so I tried to make the Savior image in my visualization reach out to me. He stretched out his arms in a wooden, perfunctory manner. Um, he's reaching out to me? It was uttered as more of a question than a statement. And what do you do? she asked. Um, I go to him and embrace, I said. The figures in my visualization hugged briefly and awkwardly, then quickly stepped apart. Okay, she went on. The Savior has come to take away your burdens. Are you willing to give them to him? Yes, I said, but in my mind, I wasn't sure. The Christ figure in my visualization looked annoyed and impatient. It was a look that I've seen when asking a child to take out the garbage, and their eyes say, Okay, I'll do it if I have to, but I have other things that I'd rather be doing. All right, she said. You pull out a burden from your body. What is the burden, and what does it look like? It's anger. I said. It is dark, and it looks like a tangled ball of string, but it doesn't hold still. It's writhing. Can you get it out? she asked. I'm trying to, but as I pull, there is still a dangling string, and it goes so deep that it doesn't seem to have an end, I said. Keep pulling, she said. Can you reach the end of the string? I think so, I said. Where is it coming from? What part of your body? she asked. I think it's coming from my heart, I said, but I'm not sure. It might be in my head as well. What are you angry about? she pressed. I'm angry that men are stronger than women. I'm angry at God for making us that way. I'm angry that it's so unfair, I said. She kept asking horrible questions that I didn't want to answer, trying to pull burden after burden from my soul. I just wanted it to stop. I didn't want to do this in front of her. I didn't want to air my dirty laundry before her. She was not safe. Finally, she said, Can you get out any more? I can't find anything. I said, Okay, now look at this pile that you've pulled from your body, she instructed. What does it look like? It's a big tangle at my feet, I said. It looks kind of like a bush. How big is it? she asked. It comes up to my waist, I answered, but it's really wide, maybe four feet. 
Okay, she said. You see this big bush of burdens at your feet. The Savior is willing to get rid of this. How does he do it? What happens to it? I don't know, I said. I think he waves his hand and it begins to fade until it disappears. What does he do next, she asked. The picture in my head was unclear. I could tell that the Savior wanted to leave, but obviously Suzanne was expecting him to do more. What was he supposed to do? Um, I said, he calls me by name and invites me to come again if I want to get rid of some more. Is there anything else? She asked. Does he say anything to you? No, I said. He left. Okay, she said. You can open your eyes now. She handed me a tissue to wipe my tears. Well, you did better than I did my first time, she said. He called you by name. That's really good. Actually, I had been working on that one for weeks in my daily declarations. I had been repeating, I am a child of God. He knows my name and he loves me. Every day, trying to convince myself that it was true. It was reassuring to hear that it had been difficult for her as well, but I probably didn't really do better than she had because I kept so much of what I saw hidden and tried to say the parts that I thought she wanted to hear. You're going to have to do this again, she said. I think the Savior has more that he wants to say to you. I think he wants to tell you that he loves you and tell you how wonderful and amazing you are. My heart sank. I don't ever want to do that again. It was awful. It was also incredibly disturbing. Why was I able to be at peace when I was by myself, but as soon as another person was added to the picture, I immediately assumed that I was in danger and I needed to defend myself from an attack? Is that the way I viewed everybody else? As threats to my personal safety? I knew it wasn't always like that. Even more disturbing was the evidence that I was more comfortable with the image of defending myself from attack than I was with meeting the Savior and having Him be willing to accept my burdens. The first scenario was far more believable and I knew what to expect. The second was awkward and unrealistic. Why would the Savior bother to meet one-on-one -on -one with me? I was a nobody. I don't think I'll be able to, I pleaded. I'm going to cry, and I hate crying. It's not pretty when I cry. My eyes get red and swollen, and it takes two days for the swelling to go down. I get a headache. I hate people asking me if I'm okay. I hate everything about crying. Crying is healing, she said. It's actually one of the fastest ways to release the garbage from inside you. Tears are filled with emotion. They're a great way to release those emotions that have been trapped inside of you. I hate it, I repeated. 
Maybe you can find a time when nobody else is home and you're by yourself. Then you can have time to get composed before you have to face people again, she suggested. I'm not going to have any time by myself, I said. We're going on a family vacation. We have a week at a condo in Eden by Pineview Reservoir the same time every year. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the same time, and this year hardly anybody is going to be able to come. It will mostly be just me and Lewis. She raised her eyebrows slightly. And how is that going to go, she asked. Well, I said, he's really excited about it and has been talking about all the things we can do with just the two of us. I see, she said. So your plan is to do everything he wants to do and pretend to be happy so he'll have a good time. Am I right? Well, actually, yes, I replied, ashamed by her brutally accurate deduction. Let's talk about the teeter-totter again, she said. Remember the need to give and receive? You're not supposed to be the sacrificial lamb who does everything for everybody else all the time. You are not supposed to be a martyr, and you are not just Lewis's sidekick. You are a person. You have needs too, and you have a right to have those needs met. You will be a better wife if your needs are met. I wasn't sure how to respond to that, so I didn't say anything. Lewis is air energy type, right? She asked. Yes, I said. And your water, she asked. Yes, I replied again. We all need to have fun, but fun looks different for different people, she went on. For Lewis, fun means playing. But for you, fun is probably to spend time alone to rejuvenate. Am I right? Yes, I answered. Is there any way you can rearrange your vacation so that you can spend some time alone, she asked. I am re-energized by being alone where I'm able to think and not worry about taking care of everybody else. I spent a few days away by myself to be able to create that women's retreat. Could you do that? The very idea startled me. I think that would really hurt Lewis's feelings, I said. He's been looking forward to it. Yes, but it's draining the life out of you, isn't it? She said. Well... Yes, I said, and began to seriously ponder the idea. I just saw a flicker of a smile, she said. The idea really appeals to you, doesn't it? Yes, I admitted. But how could I ever do that? You'll have to talk with Lewis, she said. She gave a few suggestions on how I could approach the topic in a way that wouldn't be offensive. Will you do it, she asked. Will you ask for time to be alone? Okay, I said. I'll do it. When does your trip begin? She asked. On Saturday, I replied. This Saturday? As in three days from now? She clarified. Yes, I replied. Okay. Will you text me by Friday at noon with his answer? She asked. Okay, I said with a sigh of resignation. Good. She nodded. Let's talk about your homework assignment for the week. I want you to write a letter to God and also write his answer to you, she instructed. 
I immediately thought about the movie Collateral Beauty and Will Smith's letters to love, time, and death. How on earth do you write a letter to God? And how does he write back? First, to prepare yourself, I want you to write the answers to three questions, she began. The first question is, what are my thoughts about myself and my relationship to God? The second is, what are my thoughts about God? And the third is, what are my thoughts about what God thinks of me? I remembered those questions from the women's retreat, and I remembered not wanting to answer them. These questions help you determine where you're at. The next part is to help you get where you want to be. When you know what you want to say, write your letter to God. Pour out all the stuff that's bothering you. Dump out all your heartache and tell him how you feel. It's okay to vent everything. This is done with the intent to heal, and it won't offend him. You're not just ranting. Anybody can rant and yell at God, and it doesn't do anything except make you angrier. This is about healing and getting answers. Express your needs, she said. Then put your pen on the paper and write his response. It's like when you wrote a letter to your body at the retreat. You write a letter, and then you write the response. Do you remember doing that? Well, I never actually finished that, I admitted. I wrote a letter to my body, but I didn't write a response. Then you're only doing half, she chided. Actually, I wasn't doing it at all, nor did I have any intention of doing it in the future. Not only did that seem really weird, but I didn't see the point of the exercise. Do you understand what you're supposed to be doing? She asked. I don't really think so, I admitted. It's something about writing until you can't think of anything else to write, but what else? How is this different from the journaling and finding ping pong balls and tearing it up? Okay, she explained. These are completely different. They are both written, but they have different objectives. When you're taking out the trash, you are writing for the purpose of finding the root of the problem so you can get rid of it. That's where you write until you can't think of anything else to say. And then tell your body, thanks, that was awesome. Now dig deeper. When you're done, you tear it up or burn it. Suzanne continued. What I'm talking about now is searching for answers to questions. When you're writing this letter to God, do it with a question in your mind. Something like, what do you really think about women? Since that is one of the things that's bothering you. Vent all your frustrations, and when it's all on the paper, pause and lift the pen to the next line and write, Dear Linda, wait until the thoughts come to your mind and just write everything. Then read what you've written. This will be your answer. You will discover truth that has been hidden inside you, but that you've forgotten. This is done with the intent to heal. I'm assuming you desire to heal, to find truth, and to improve your relationship with God. That's what this is all about. Is that something you want? Well, yes, I said. This is kind of like a prayer journal, she explained further. 
Sometimes when we pray verbally, we say the words out of habit and don't really pay attention. When you're praying with writing, you're forced to focus and it amplifies your ability to get answers. Okay, I said. That seems reasonable. I could try that. It may also help to find a sacred, peaceful place to do this, she added. Chapter 33 A Pattern She paused to look at her watch. Well, we've gone over time with the mentoring segment of our time together, so we don't have much time for body code, but at least we can address one or two things. What would you like to work on? Oh, just whatever my body needs most, I guess, I said. All right, Suzanne began. It looks like we need to address another mental image. This one is, I am a nobody, and is from around age 25. But we need to know more before we can release it. What was happening in your life about that time? Let's see, I pondered. That was about the time that Lewis got hired with the airlines. It was also the time his first book was published. Suzanne paused and looked at me. And did you edit his book as well? Yes, I said. And is your name on the cover? She asked. No, I said. She gave me a knowing look as if to say, Are you recognizing a pattern yet? I remembered that exciting yet stressful time when McGraw-Hill accepted Lewis's proposal for a technical book on flying. In his subsequent books, he didn't need my help very much. And nowadays, when he writes for various flying magazines, I often don't even see the article until after it's been submitted to the editor. However, in that first book, the challenge to find the right words to express the desired meaning was painstakingly difficult. I worked with him, scrutinizing and revising every word on every page until it was good enough for publication. The project took several months, but it was so satisfying. Lewis shared the completed manuscript with a former high school friend named Joe, who read it and wrote a brief note in response. Do you think I should add Joe's name to the book? Lewis asked one day. He's an English major, and it might look good on his resume to say that he edited a book. My jaw dropped to the floor. Joe had skimmed through the manuscript once and wrote two sentences with suggestions, yet Lewis wanted to add his name to the cover. I had worked side by side with him for months, poring over every word and every phrase, and helped in the selection of photos and captions and ensured that everything was complete in accordance with the contract guidelines and expectations. The unfairness of the suggestion cut me to the core. I talked Lewis out of adding Joe's name to the book. I could handle not getting credit, but giving the credit to Joe was more than I could bear. We all need to feel recognized and appreciated for what we do, Suzanne said, pulling me out of my reverie. Remember when I said that I did the body code for free for a year? It was awful. No one appreciated my efforts. It wasn't about money. I didn't care that I wasn't getting paid. I was serving out of love. But those I worked with rarely got back with me to let me know it helped 
or that they appreciated it. I was giving my all and getting nothing back to show that it was of any worth to them. It wasn't until I started charging for my services that people valued it. Now my clients always thank me, and I know I'm doing good because people tell me so. At the conclusion of the agonizing session, she hugged me and said, Linda, you are awesome. I can't wait until you can see it. I was relieved that it was finally time for me to go home. Suzanne is not safe, I thought. I'm supposed to send her constant updates, some daily, others weekly, and detailed questionnaires before each mentoring session. I never expected that she'd actually read them and ask me about them. She knows too much. I don't want to send any more. I don't want to be weighed and measured by what I do. I plan to only include the most generic successes possible from now on so she can't ask horrible questions. I need to protect myself from her prying eyes. How can I hide from her and still allow her to help me? If I have to choose between the two, I prefer hiding. I felt angry, confused, and ashamed. I wanted to quit every bit as much as I did on the very first day. My head was swimming with things that bothered me. One was the thought of this journal that I've been writing. I felt compelled to do it and to share it, but I never ever intended to put my name on it. If I have to share, then fine, I'll share, because there's a chance that it might help another person, I thought, but no one will ever know who I really am. I had created a fictitious name, Lucy Birch, and that is how I plan to publish it in whatever form it gets published. I plan to stay hidden behind the safety of this straw man, woman, and false persona, but all of Suzanne's comments about me writing and never getting the credit were like slaps in the face. But this is different, I mentally protested. I need to stay hidden to protect myself. This is not about success and glory. It's about an agonizing and embarrassing struggle for healing. I will be exposed and vulnerable to anybody. There is no way God or anyone else would actually expect me to do this. It's too hard. It's too awful to even think about. But I did think about it. I agonized over it for the rest of the day. My daughter noticed my heavy countenance and asked, Was someone mean to you? No, it's just that I began and then changed my mind and said, Yes. Your Aunt Suzanne was mean to me. She makes me do things that I don't want to do. She makes me see myself in new and horrible ways, and it's super painful. She makes me face things I want to ignore. She is mean. My daughter laughed. You can do this, Mom, she assured me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this section of the book. The next section is available on the following podcast. Please subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. The book Crushed is available on Amazon. 
and the audiobook version will soon be available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Again, my name is Linda Bjork. You can find more information by searching for Linda Bjork Hope for Healing, Linda Bjork Two Good Things, and Linda Bjork Innovative Joy. In closing, I'd like to leave you with an inspirational quote by Henry Nguyen. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. I hope that today you choose joy. See you next time on Linda's Corner.